Hello, friends, and welcome to another exciting episode of Zippy the Wonder Snail on this Thanksgiving week. I'm here with my co-commissar, Jason. Hey, Jason, how are you this week? Hey, Tim, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm looking forward to pie and turkey and all kinds of wonderful things like that. How about yourself? Uh, sounds like a plan. I think I be thankful for that. Me too. So much to be thankful for. And then, of course, we'll be into Black Friday, the day that we celebrate our Thanksgiving by plowing over people for great deals at stores, right? That's coming up too this week. That's right. Which seems like a great time to tell my my latest foibles and failures at, at eBaying, because... If you want to avoid those crowds, you can, of course, go online. And and I was mentioning to you, Jason, right before the show, how much I enjoy eBay for that. You can find all kinds of wonderful things on eBay, things that have sold out in store, find great deals, stuff like that. A couple weeks ago, I was on there and I saw something I just thought I cannot resist buying. That's just too great a deal. And it was a large version phone soap. And, And the phone soap, for those of you that aren't familiar with it is just this marvelous little device. It's a little UV light case that sanitizes your phone. Forget the pandemic, just go even before that. Do you realize that your phone is actually dirtier than your toilet seat? Ew, that's disgusting. You gotta be kidding, right? No, unfortunately, according to studies that have researched such things, if you take a sample of the bacteria off of a toilet seat, even a public toilet seat, let's up the ante a little, a public toilet seat and your personal phone, the phone is going to be almost certainly dirtier. It's going to have more bacteria on it. That's the most disgusting thing I've heard all week. Glad to provide. There have been all kinds of studies showing just how awful our phones are. And so the phone soap is just this neat thing. I've had one for years. You can put your phone in it. You close the case so it protects you from the UV rays. It's going to irradiate your phone or other small device with. And then it just blasts it and kills all that stuff that's on your phone. Wonderful thing. Anyway, the company that made the original phone soap, which is so much better than the imitators where you have to flip the phone partway through it, actually does it all in one one swipe, uh, came out with something called the phone soap home soap. And it's this big scale one that can take iPads and other larger devices, anything that's like 10 inches by 9 inches by 4 inches or smaller, goes for like 200 bucks. I'm on eBay the other night, and there's one for... $20. And and I look at the seller and it's not someone who's selling for the first time and you wonder if they're going to ship you a bunch of rocks or something. This is someone who has good feedback over several hundred transactions. I thought, sold. I'm going for this thing. So it it goes in, in the mail. 20 bucks, 10, 10% of the normal price, open box, but but new. And it arrives, and, and I come out to my porch, and it looks like the mafia have dropped off a bunch of, of bills, like for some kind of transaction that I've been doing. It's just this brown paper-wrapped package, not a box, but package, all taped up. And I pick it up, and I can hear clink, 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 and I, I just know it's bad news. So I open it up, and there's this open box, was brand new, foam soap, home soap. $200 unit that I got it for $20 and the glass inside all the light bulbs that make the do the UV magic that radiates everything just shattered just a bunch of shards of glass inside and it's just oh boy so I, well you know I thought for a second there as you're telling that story that we we're gonna find out that Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes it's a very interesting season and gifts are a part of that and the the foibles of gift giving are a part of that. So thanks for an amusing uh amusing start to the show there, Tim. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I I'm broken over this. The other thing I was gonna Shattered. say is Oh man, really you and your bad pun. I was gonna say eBay, you know, uh 
the the late '90s called. They want their retailers back. So I was <laughs> I was a little bit surprised. I haven't heard eBay in a while, but uh, there you go. I'm telling you, you really should check it out. There's a lot of great things on there, and it's a great place for less crowded Christmas shopping and some things from the '90s or before. And that's what we find with Christmas music too, right? We we go back to our old favorites, whether they're from 20 years ago. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever it might be. And of course, of course, that means that one voice will prove once again that she can be omnipresent across the entire globe for two months. The voice of Mariah Carey. That is right. And, you know, there there's some great passion that is generated by that song. All I want for Christmas is you. And it's such a Christmas classic at this point, but you know, it it's definitely not universally beloved. Then you get into the debate, well, how soon is it proper to listen to such things? And I think that's kind of what we want to talk about in a little friendly way here at the beginning of the show. So what do you think? Tim, what's your position on this? Usually my position, I don't have any sort of formal declaration. I've seen some people toss those around. Most of the time, by first, second week of November, especially if we maybe get a few snow flurries, we haven't gotten those this year, but usually by this time I can't resist any longer and I, I've, I've given in to the impulse and, and I've been listening to Christmas music for a number of days now already. How about yourself? Well, being quite liturgical that I am, you might imagine that I have a very formal process for making this decision. So I have decided that I am not allowed to listen to any Christmas music until after Christ the King, which is usually somewhere between November 21st and November 27th or so, give or take. Uh, And that is a very uh, ancient liturgical holiday uh, where we honor Christ as King of the Universe. And then right after that, Advent begins. So that Sunday... And especially since uh, 1970 here in the West, uh, we celebrate Christ the King in the last weekend of basically the last week of November. That's my rule for myself. I'm not super rigid about it. I know people are going to do what they're going to do. But that's when the Christmas music comes out for me. So you get Mariah, you get uh, old favorites from Boys to Men, you get George Michael and Wham. uh, So, you know, last Christmas and that sort of thing. So... I'm all about it. I I don't uh, like there. I only have a few of those pop favorites. I don't like uh, pop music that's Christmassy per se. I would rather listen to old hymns like a really good version of Old Holy Night uh, or something like that or anything like Nat King Cole. He's amazing. So, you know, you get George Michael out of the way, you get Mariah out of the way, and then you got to go back to Nat King Cole and Bing Crosby and, and even Michael Buble has earned his place there now. So yes. that's where I go with the Christmas music. And timing is going to be debated, but we all know we're going to get there sooner or later. So it's a joyous season and it, and as well it should be. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, <clears throat> I I can listen to Christmas music. I could probably listen to it almost throughout the entire year. I, I love Christmas music. M- my big bone to pick with the way that we do it in our culture is that, you, you know, you have those 24-hour Christmas music radio stations that start right after Halloween and run to, to Christmas night. And for one, it bothers me, we stop on the first day of Christmas. It, it should go for the 12 days of Christmas. It just should. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, just, it seems like, why would you stop when... Families are still getting together. I mean, church year aside, even, unfortunately, 
people are still celebrating Christmas, so why stop then? And and I think part of the answer is by then people have been driven nuts because they've already heard Mariah, you know, 2,000 times this year, that sort of thing. And what really bothers me about that is there's so much good Christmas music out there, and so much bad, but I mean, there's just so much Christmas music. Right. There's no reason why we should hear on repeat over and over again even really good stuff, because there's just so much to, to dig into. I, I love some of the pop, some of it I'm not as fond of. Um, a few of the the earlier era Christian artists like Amy Grant and Michael W. Smith, I, I'm a big fan of their Christmas albums. It just isn't Christmas until I hear Christmas time from Michael W. Smith, for example. And, and then, of course, like you said, all the crooners, um, they're, they're great. You know, Dean Martin's another one. It just seems right with the, these folks singing Christmas music. And yeah, so I, I'm excited. I'm, I'm ready for it. Now, I did, I kind of broke your rule on you here because I introduced you. I, I can't believe this. I actually knew a Taylor Swift song that you didn't know. And that just, that just it <laughs> blows my mind. Uh, but it's one that I feel like kind of went under the radar, which is her song, original Christmas song, Christmas Tree Farm, that came out a couple of years ago. Yeah, I had never heard it, and it is super catchy. And if anyone is really sick of hearing Mariah too much, like, this is a happy alternative. And I don't feel like it'll it'll get super old real fast. So I really like it. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, this, this song doesn't seem to be very well known, and it's unfortunate because it's just a nice, sweet Christmas song. Not a sacred song by any means, just a secular Christmas song, but... But I really like it. It has nice pictures of, of family Christmases. It's just a, the kind of old-fashioned Christmas that, that most of us think back to fondly. And it even throws in things like forgiveness, which is not always a feature in music today. And it's just really nice. So Yeah, I never heard it before. And I loved it. And Jason, just as in the best of infomercial traditions, but wait, there's more. Taylor Swift has also just released this year the new quote, old-timey edition of Christmas Tree Farm through Amazon. And so that's a fun new way to enjoy a little extra Christmas music this year. I've really been enjoying Amazon's been doing lots of Amazon exclusives, and this one's a lot of fun. Congratulations to Queen Taylor. She's at it again. So uh, there you go. We're going to talk about her more in just a moment. But before we do it, I should give one more shout out, which is if you haven't listened to Carrie Underwood's Christmas album from, I think it was last year, it is really good and has some great sacred Christmas music on it in addition to the pop stuff. So it's, it's well worth your time. I had seen some video clips along those lines, Tim, so I didn't get a chance to listen to the whole thing, but I did catch a few clips here and there, and she is quite vocally powerful and impressive, and she knows how to work a stage, too, so in person, you can see that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, So we all know Christmas music all too well, right, Jason? That is right. And that was my my really bad attempt at a segue. We we wanted to at least tease you guys that we are planning to do a return to Taylor Swift. We're going to talk about Taylor's version of Red, uh, her 2012 album. Neither of us were huge fans of the album when it first came out, but it feels like one of those albums that aged really well over time. And we wanted to return to the new version that everyone seems to be talking about right now. So we need to do that in a future episode. And we will do that, and we're very excited to. The new the new version, it does run for two hours and ten minutes. So I have felt like, geez, I don't have two hours and ten minutes just to listen to the same thing right now, but I'm going to do that, and for the next show, we're going to talk about it. So everyone will be excited for that. I think it'll still be live by then. Yeah, yeah, and I, 
I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, there's lots. I mean, it's basically like two albums. You have the original album, and then with the vault tracks that are previously unreleased, it's almost like a whole second album. Yeah, that's right. There was there was one. Uh, maybe it's message message in a bottle that I heard. Uh, that was a really good song. That was one of the vault songs. I'm getting ahead of us here, but that that's really good, and I'm glad they're throwing unreleased tracks on there. Uh, maybe they're not brand brand new for this time, but they kept them in reserve, you know. So good for them, and we'll talk about it in more detail on the next show. Yeah, we'll we'll get back to that next time. We do have a full schedule today and lots to talk about. And the next two segments, we're actually going to be hitting materials from Open for Business, www.ofb.biz, our first sponsor. If you don't already come to OFB every week for news, culture, and information, you really should because there's great stuff on there. So you should check out OFB.biz. It's, I think, a little different than what you find in most sectors of the internet or our culture right now. Um, Yeah, we hit some of the the big hot button issues, but I'd like to think we come at it in a more thoughtful and and hopefully helpful way. So please check it out. OFB.biz. those pieces, Jason, is your column from this past week, and it seemed like a perfect column as we approach Thanksgiving, because you're talking about being thankful, but you don't start where most of us start when we're talking about being thankful. You start with suffering, and maybe you'd just like to talk about that a little. One of the reasons that I felt like I had to start there uh, is that sometimes, depending on who we're listening to or who we're talking to, we feel like we're being compelled to be thankful. Um, And I think a lot of us who have gone through a fair amount of suffering are going, well, yes, I want to be thankful, but I've gone through some things, and what is going to be the explanation for that? And so I... I was thinking of thankfulness in the shadow of suffering because we know we know we're going to suffer. We know that we have suffered and that it's it's a part of everyone's life no matter what you believe or the hope that you cling to uh whether it's in Christ or something else, you're going to suffer and we've all gone through it some some of us horrible horrible unimaginable suffering. And Yet we know, we're wondering at the mystery of life, what is the purpose of life and what is the good life? And I realized that the secret to a good life is thankfulness. But I knew that it would be slightly inappropriate, as I've said, to start with thankfulness without talking about that shadow that gets cast over life in the form of suffering. So what is it about suffering that can lead us into thankfulness? And this is what I discovered, is that suffering testifies that I'm alive. And when I suffer, I have an awareness that I'm not supposed to suffer, that there's something about this suffering that is less than ideal. And I figure that if we can conceptualize that, if we can think about that, and if we can imagine something better and hope for something better, then we must be destined for that better and not for the suffering 
suffering. And then I and then I realized, you know, we think about evil a lot. Why does God allow evil in the world? Um, and we don't have a good answer to that if we're being completely honest. We know that God is good. We know that God is sovereign. But we know that we experience things that are that are evil, and that broke out for me into moral evil, which is people choosing to do wrong things and then experiencing the consequences, either their own consequences or from the wrongdoing of other people, or physical evil, like horrible misfortunes like hurricanes and tornadoes and sickness and death and accident and so forth. So when we put all those things together, we we know that Death is coming for us, but everything short of death lets us know that we're still here and that we long for something better than to be in the throes of suffering. And then we say, well, if I want something better, if I long for it, then especially as Christians, we love to say that there's something good on the other side of this and that God will bring good out of this. But I began to realize and I said to the people that we try to get past the suffering too quickly um, and learn a lesson from the suffering while we're still in the suffering. And in a certain way, that's unfair to do to ourselves and to do to each other because there's a certain sort of courage that we can appreciate in simply enduring the suffering and bearing up under the suffering. And I realized that one of the fuels for thankfulness is to be able to bear up under that suffering and not be and not be crushed by it uh, because we find uh, we find that spark of life, we find meaning and joy in simply enduring that which we suffer. And also that, you know, when we try to move to the wisdom, to the lessons of suffering too quickly, we forget that it's not all on us as individuals to defend or proclaim God's honor at every moment that we experience suffering. If we're able to confess the goodness of God in particular things, by all means do it. But I think we get this false idea that if uh, that if I weep or if I groan in my suffering, if I wish if I wish for it to go away, that somehow I'm being unspiritual, and that isn't true. Uh, because, like I said in the piece, the psalmist suffers and groans and cries out to God, but those are also some of the greatest benedictions of God's name that have ever been spoken spoken or written or sung. So there's something about suffering that's not an end in itself, but can lead us to thankfulness, especially when we endure and that we find uh, the joy of simply living in spite of the suffering. I, I so appreciate what you're saying now and, and what you wrote in the piece. I think something that strikes me in the midst of all that, is, and, and I like how you're saying we don't need to immediately understand the suffering or, or immediately go to like a... a philosophical defense of God's justice or or anything like that. But you mentioned instead one of the ways we can work through the suffering and be prepared for it is simply to be aware of the things that we should be thankful for. And not in the sense, and I like how you said this, that we shouldn't tie ourselves up into knots trying to make these really impressive lists of things we're thankful for. But instead, I think it's so neat. This is something that just really stuck with me from your piece. You say to think of when a little child is giving the blessing at a dinner. And maybe some of us will have this experience in a few days on Thanksgiving, where maybe you go around the table and everyone's praying, giving thanks to God and so on. And and there'll be the, the little kid that, that starts 
giving thanks for this, that, and the other thing, trucks and trees, you mentioned candy and cap guns. And you mentioned the the quality of of faith like a child. And I I thought that was so striking that that one of the things that does help us to bear up under suffering isn't to somehow say, oh, the suffering is good, and immediately understand why the suffering is good, but simply to allow ourselves to come before God with a childlike faith that says all these things that we almost feel aren't sophisticated enough to thank him for and to be thankful for and, and to dwell on. These are things we can come to God and thank him for. And if we're doing that, it makes it so much easier than when, we, when we're suffering and we're really suffering. The least we're we're suffering, but but we're focusing at least part of our attention on these things that remind us that our God loves us. It doesn't make the suffering less painful, but it rem- it makes it more bearable. I think. Right, because I could imagine that uh, it's kind of funny to to listen to a kid pray for everything under the sun. But then I realized, why is it funny? Why does it cause us discomfort? Because I said we're the ones that tend to forget those little things and how they propel us through a day and remind us of that that love and that joy that God is giving us through good things. And so even if we can't make a complicated list, let's think about all the good things that we enjoyed today. And then say to God, thank you for all these good things that brought me joy. Thank you for the Jimmy John's that was delivered to my apartment. Thank you for the cherry Coke that was also there. Thank you for my conversation with Tim before we went on the air tonight. Thank you for lots of these things. And maybe some some people would find it funny because they're not the exact same things that they would be thankful for or they don't seem like adult things. But again, why are those things wrong? And at what point did they become wrong uh, to thank God for candy and for, for cap guns and, you know, teddy bears, the Cardinals, and, you know, on and on. So I think that can that can help us be thankful in a less formal way, because I think we freak each other out. We freak ourselves out. We try to make thankfulness too formal. Yes. And I think we do the same thing with prayer. When prayer is too formal, uh, then then it becomes this big thing that kind of makes us anxious or makes us feel like we have to clean ourselves up before God and, and tell him things we don't really mean. And that that's not true. So uh, just some thoughts I had about thankfulness and suffering, because it's all going to be mixed in together in any life that lasts any length of time. Right. So let's figure out how to handle both and how to live with both. Uh, because in a certain sense, we don't have a choice. I mean, thankfulness is a choice, uh, but in that way, it's a blessed choice, um, and it's a better choice than not being thankful for anything at all. So uh, let's do that, and let's think through that. So that was my piece from earlier, and there we go. Well, that's such a good reminder, Jason, and I think such a good thing for us to be thinking about as we go into this Thanksgiving week, just not approaching it as some formal duty, something to stress us out. Another reason not to be thankful because we have to think of why we are thankful, but simply to spend some time and and maybe learn from those who do have the most childlike faith amongst us that are just thankful for the things that we take for granted. And yes, there's going to be suffering in the midst of it, but we do serve a good God and we get to celebrate the goodness that he gives us this Thanksgiving week. So thanks for sharing that. And I encourage our listeners, go check out the full column at Open for Business.
topic is about a piece you wrote this week about uh, church abuse that you experienced uh, and a, a peacemaker ministry as ministries as they were called um, and maybe you could say a little more about that I know I didn't know a whole lot about it before I looked into uh, what you wrote and also the piece that was in Christianity today earlier this week so yeah the Christianity today piece was really the the occasion to explore this again I'd written about it on Open for Business, what, uh, 11 years ago now, um, a year after I'd gone through just a absolutely horrifying season at, at the church I'd grown up as in seminary at the time. I'd written about it in one column on Open for Business. I'd blogged through the experience of trying to process what had happened. But if you're interested in all the details, if you go and read the pieces, you can delve into it. We'll have links in the show notes. The, the gist of it, though, is if you think about psychological torture, um, interrogation techniques, all that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff happens sometimes in churches. And I don't want to scare anyone off from church. There are good churches that don't do that. But, but when that stuff comes together and it's used to perpetuate power, to, to quell dissent, especially amongst whistleblowers, to do whatever it takes, to spend whatever it takes to protect the ministry, so to speak, as opposed to protecting what God has called us to do, you get this really awful, nasty thing called church abuse. And and Jason, you and I have both been through hard times in churches, and really more important than the exact details of what I went through is the fact that this stuff happens. And, and a lot of people hear about it, and they think, what's the big deal? So somebody wasn't nice to you at church. And they don't realize the pressure, because if we're Going to this place, and we believe it's a a place of refuge and a place where we can come before the God of the universe and pray to him and learn about him, and then you you form this tight-knit community of relationships, when suddenly that church turns against you, it's utterly devastating. And and when it happens, it's really hard to process. And where would you go when you go through a spiritual crisis normally? You'd go to your church. Well, you can't do that because the church is the cause of the spiritual crisis. So it's, it's an ugly, ugly thing. And for a long time, I think most people probably would have said, it's not really that big a deal. Um, if you're still dwelling on it a few days later, much less years later, there's something wrong with you. And yet, pieces like what we're seeing, we've seen a number of them come out in recent years, but this Christianity Today piece really hit home for me because the person who is part of now what's a, a nationwide scandal and she was involved in trying to cover up Ravi Zacharias's improprieties and improprieties at Mars Hill, the giant megachurch that blew up, and in various places like that, was the same person who collaborated with the pastor at my church to go after me and after my family and after several dozen other people at that church. Just awful stuff. And so it was sort of this mix of emotions, because on the one hand, one of the things that you feel when you're going through spiritual abuse is it must be me. I must have done something. I must be crazy. It can't really be happening. And so even when you intellectually know that's not the case, when you, you read a report like this and you you hear about other people, it's a reminder, no, it really did happen. And it really isn't me. And this really isn't of God. It's of the devil. But at the same time, it's just heartbreaking because you think, but there's so many more people hurt. And so anyway, in that mix, I wrote this piece and, and reflected on it. And, and I think really 
what I just wanted to to call our readers and open for business to, and and here we are uh, as we're talking about it with our friends on Zippy, is to think about two things. One is that if you're going through it, it's helpful hearing that other people are going through it because it reminds you that you're not crazy and that this isn't of God. Second thing, though, and I think this is the challenge for the church, we need to do better at standing against it. And the problem is some of the tools that are allegedly supposed to help deal with conflict and then keep it from boiling over are the very tools used for abuse. And that's the thing with this this piece in Christianity Today. It's about a woman named Judy Dabbler, who was a prominent figure in the Christian conciliation movement, which is an idea you, you grab people before they're going to go into into the courtroom, so they're not going and suing each other, which Paul, of course, warns us against doing, at least in certain circumstances, in 1 Corinthians 6, and you instead get them to come before a Christian mediator and work things out. And what do you know? Then you can apply that to whole churches, and you can encourage people, instead of getting mad at your church and just leaving and, and stomping out, go through Christian conciliation. And soon everything is solved by Christian conciliation. The problem is, inevitably in a lot of these cases, the very people appointing the conciliators who know the conciliators, who arrange for the agreements that get the whole process going, are the leaders who are doing something that's improper. And so the process, instead of actually trying to bring peace and healing, is used to silence those who have been hurt, silence those who are pointing to wrongs in the church, and so on. And so the cycle of abuse goes on. And and the, the program that Dabbler used is known as Peacemaker. It was created by Ken Sandy. He's very popular in evangelical circles and reform circles. He spoke at our, our mutual seminary. And it sounds so good. How can you possibly be against peacemaking? And you read through the book and it cites scripture passage after scripture passage. But what you realize when you start reading it is it's filtering all of scripture through Ken Sandy's legal training. And the idea of essentially in an alleged attempt to keep Christians out of court, it turns the church into a realm of the court where everything is legalese and everything is bias, just like it would be in, say, the corporate world, towards the corporation, in this case, towards the church and protecting the church. And 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 people will even defend this, saying, well, but we have to protect the mission of the church. That's where we have to stop. If protecting the mission of the church means hurting the people of God, if it means abusing people, if it means psychologically pressuring them until they break, if it means lying about them and slandering them and then locking them into agreements where they're not supposed to speak out, that's not of God. It's not anywhere in Scripture. It's not of God. It's of hell. I think it's just important that we talk about that so that people know what's going on. We can just be honest about it. And then we can try to do something about it and say, this isn't of God, and so it shouldn't be in the church. I so much appreciate uh, what you have said here and what you continue to say in your pieces. And we did do, several weeks back, we were talking about sexual abuse in a previous episode of Zippy. We know that's quite a heavy topic. And we need to say a couple of things is that when people are being abused in any way, uh, that evil people like to use the presumption of trust that naturally exists among Christians in order to flourish. Um, and that's where you start to get some really nasty stuff because people think, well, in a church, uh, nothing quite that evil will ever happen. It's a, it's a special place. It's a spiritual place. God is protecting us, you know, um, and then people use that. And the other thing I want to say is that secular people know uh, people trained in counseling and trained in recognizing abuse patterns and things like that. They recognize power imbalances between people 
And I think one of the things that you noted uh, when we talked about this and when you wrote about it is that the system that you're talking about does not recognize those power imbalances. Exactly. So you have someone done something really heinous and you have the victim in there supposedly giving an account of like the specks in their eye, the logs in their eyes. And it's like if a person has been horribly, horribly abused, they don't have anything to apologize for. Uh, maybe in the abstract, yes, but not in the particular situation. Right. And for us to be so, so naive and so foolish to think that a, that a victim owes anything to an abuser is evil, is pure evil. But even saying all that, and naming evil for what it is and calling it out and bringing it to light, that still means that God himself uh, will do the reckoning and he offers forgiveness even to those who truly repent of heinous things. And that's something that even while we don't want to minimize victims and their suffering in any way, and we've done too much of that in many ways, we don't want to become the people that deny mercy to those who truly repent and want to change and want to go on living. Uh, there is no one who has ever been alive who is a piece of trash, a piece of human trash. Uh, and no matter what they've done, that will always be true. God will judge, and when he judges, he judges rightly, but he does not create trash. That goes for everyone. We we start with our dignity, and that's a lot. That is what allows any of us, when our failures come to light, to recognize them and forthrightly confess them, and not to hide them. Right. One of the the problems I think is that in in ministry, some pastors have come to believe that if they don't appear perfect and and spotless, or at least vastly more holy than than the congregation, that somehow their ministry is over. And if they ever admit fault, their ministry is over. And I think sometimes these tools get invoked um, by pastors who decide that this congregant they've hurt, or at least not served well, needs to be silenced because to admit any fault would be to somehow call into question their ministry. And so instead of that, they go, they go from maybe some minor infraction to trying to utterly destroy someone's life. And I've seen it too many times. I've seen people walk away from the faith. I've seen people who are shells of themselves after going through the peacemaker process. Um, and a lot of it seems to be driven by the fact, not so much that even the victim doesn't want to offer an opportunity for the abuser to repent, but because the abuser seems to somehow think that the only way that he or she, in the case of Dabbler, can get out of this is to humiliate and utterly destroy the victim, uh, to get the victim to at least admit to a much greater deal of sin than the clergy member. And if we can instead kind of reverse that whole narrative and say, it's okay if you're a clergy member and you need to repent, and if you've done stuff like this before and you're listening to us, you don't have to keep doing it. Uh, now's a good time to repent. And um, if we had a lot more repentance in the church and a lot less forced confessions by abusive pastors, we'd be much better off. So I, I hope that is a somber but ultimately redemptive word because we don't have to stay here and God doesn't call us to stay here. And we're seeing that too much of the church today is just dwelling here. And the first step, I think, is to just expose this stuff, get it out there. Yeah, that's right. Amen. We we start with our dignity, and that's a lot. That is what allows any of us, when our failures come to light, to recognize them and forthrightly confess them, and not to hide them. Right. Well, Jason, I know you'd also like to address how we process being forgiving as those who have been hurt. 
it's hard because in in most of these spiritual abuse situations, there's extreme pressure on the victim to forgive and very little push on the abuser to repent. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm not big into triggers and such, but that's a pretty big one for most people that have gone through it. I want to make sure that we can really work through that carefully because that's a hard subject. If you've been deeply hurt, if you've faced abuse from someone in church leadership, we need to process that very carefully and think, how do we offer forgiveness? Should we offer forgiveness? What does that look like? How do we do that in a way that's safe? All these sorts of things, we need to think about that. Right, that's right. And what we can do to acknowledge what happened and to know the truth about ourselves, the real truth and not some lies that somebody made up, and then go forward in the truth and the love that God offers. So let's go ahead and come back to this next episode and spend some time on that then. We're running short on time, but you and I talked about discussing Romans 2 as part of our podcast tonight. And and I I think about verse 1, where Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. And in that, you know, Paul isn't saying we can't ever stand for what's right. He's speaking of the sort of judgment where we place ourselves above another person and somehow think of ourselves as as worthy to be judge, jury, and executioner while the other person is is junk, like you were saying. And and um, and unfortunately, that's often how spiritual abuse happens because the the clergy member or other spiritual leader puts themselves in that position. And certainly when we respond, we have to be careful to continue to heed Paul's warning and not to try to reverse the role and fall into the same trap the abuser had. Right, that's right. And there's no part of Romans 2 where any of us uh, can feel as though we're better than someone else. I think what Paul is laying out is that everyone is guilty. He starts by talking about the wrath of God is revealed against all sort of wickedness that happens under the sun in chapter 1. And he names it all and he calls it out very specifically. And then in chapter 2, he's like, basically all y'all have done this. This is the Jason translation of Romans 2. But everybody has done this to a degree or another. And what he's setting us up for is if we're left to our own devices, we have no righteousness of our own that we can go to God and say, we're good, we're better than these people over here. If he didn't offer us mercy, then we would be nowhere, all of us. Uh, and and that's what Paul's setting us up for, especially in chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, because Christ is the one who's going to come and settle all the debt for all of us, Jew and Gentile, and those who were God-fearers at the time, and those who were not, and those who had never heard anything about the God of Israel. It's all going to be a set, settled in all the accounts by Jesus Christ, because um, he talks about how at the end of all time, uh, the secrets of men are going to be judged by the gospel in Christ. Uh, there in verse 13, I butchered that verse a little bit too, 13, but it's all there. Because Jesus, when Jesus shines the light of truth on everything, then everything will be clear. There will be no more time for debate or questions or confusion. But the thing is, we either hope in Christ or we hope in ourselves. And if we hope in ourselves, uh, then we go nowhere spiritually. So so in a way, uh, that should be a word of hope because Christ is out there offering himself to us and offering uh, mercy that we didn't deserve, mercy that we wouldn't even know how to ask for. And then it leads all the way to glory and to be sons and daughters of God in the kingdom of God through Christ. I know these segments always end up with me saying the same thing, talking about 
sonship and daughtership of God in the kingdom. Uh, but that really is, even if we're not sure what we're talking about, that really is the glory of what we're talking about here in Christ Jesus, is that everything that was given to Christ uh, can potentially, it's out there on offer, be given to any of us. And how mind-blowing is that? That the privileges that belong to the only begotten Son of God are the same privileges and honor as sons and daughters that will be given to us by God the Father in Christ. What a great gift. Tim's the preacher. I'm going to let the preacher take this away for the end of this. But man, that's something to get you up in the morning. Absolutely. And and I think it's sort of a great place for us to wrap up tonight. We've talked about some really heavy subjects. And you think about it. If you've been through spiritual abuse, you feel like you can kind of get Romans too. You feel like you've heard lots of judgment and you've experienced that. And maybe you believe some of the lies even that you've been told. And, and you and so you can see the the judgment side of God really well. But we have to make sure to keep in mind exactly what you mentioned. And, and Romans 2 isn't meant to be read by itself in isolation. It's meant to lead us to understand, yes, we're broken, yes, we're fallen, yes, we're sinful, but yes, we're loved by a God who adopts us into his family, just like you were saying. And and so, if you've gone through abuse and you're wondering what to do with God, this is exactly where we should land. If you're just suffering, we talked about suffering earlier. What could be better than to remember, yes, there's suffering, but God's going to make all things new. And just like we talked about a few weeks ago in Revelation, he's going to invite us to the heavenly banquet. We actually come to to dine with him, to be with him. And in the meantime, the Lord's Supper is like a trailer for the best movie ever. It reminds us constantly as we receive the, the body and blood of Christ. It reminds us constantly, this is what's coming. You're being nourished by Christ right now, and you're going to be nourished by his love in all eternity. Um, and that's a thing that is just the best thing to celebrate this Thanksgiving week and every week. So I hope that encourages all of you. If we've talked about some of these hard subjects and you're wrestling with them, if you have questions, if you need someone to pray for you, if you need someone who's been through some of it and you just like to have a sympathetic ear that actually understands, we would love to hear from you. You can write us uh, on our website, send us an email, leave a comment, and we'll reach out to you, private message us on social media, however you'd like to do it. We would be honored to be there for you for that. Or if you just want to reach out to us about anything on this show or another episode, always good to hear from you. As you're traveling this holiday season, I just want to remind you of our last sponsor, which is Faith Tree Weather. The weather outside may get frightful, but it's always delightful to go to faithtree.com weather and get the weather without advertising with a scripture that relates to the weather and it will not track you. faithtree.com slash weather. It's there for you this Thanksgiving, this Christmas season, and throughout the winter, as will be your faithful co-hosts of Zippy with the Wonder Snail. We're always glad to be two Christian guys zipping through news culture and the things that matter to you, and we will see you again on the other side of Thanksgiving. <laughs>